So Money Episode 655, Entrepreneur and Designer, Sarah Shaw. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome back to the show. November 22nd, 2017. One day to go until Thanksgiving. Wishing you all a restful, peaceful, happy Thanksgiving wherever you are, however you celebrate. Uh, Wishing you all the best. Today's episode is about serial entrepreneurship. What makes someone a serial entrepreneur? What about starting six businesses over the span of 20 years and having those businesses go on to generate many, many millions of dollars? I think that's a pretty good measure. Our guest today is Sarah Shaw, and she has gone from working as a costume supervisor on Hollywood sets to launching several fashion-driven companies that have gone on to be endorsed by top magazines and celebrities, including Sarah Jessica Parker, Reese Witherspoon, and Cameron Diaz. She comes to the show with many fascinating stories of starting businesses, sometimes on the fly. And also being very honest about the challenges. You know, what happens when all of your investors decide to pull out of your company at the same time? Just ask Sarah. It happened to her in 2002, forcing her to start over in some ways. And in that process, she also lost the trademark to her own name. What was the important advice her father gave her? That was a light bulb moment. Today, Sarah runs Sarah Shaw Consulting, where she helps clients successfully create and launch their products. She's also the host of a popular podcast called Street Smart MBA, where she interviews successful entrepreneurs about all the difficult lessons they've learned over the years and on the mean streets of the business world, including Venus Williams, Barbara Corcoran, and Marcus Lemonis, who's the host of The Profit on C. Here we go. Hope you enjoy this one. I certainly did. Here's Sarah Shaw. Sarah Shaw, welcome to So Money, Serial Entrepreneur of the Week. I'm so glad to be here with you. <laughs> Our mutual friend, Emma Johnson, who is a was a guest on this show as well, connected us because she thought you'd be a perfect guest for this audience, and you absolutely are. You exceed expectations. In fact, for those listening, Sarah Shaw is a multiple business starter. You've started something like six businesses over the years, each one successful in its own right, many, many hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars generated. And we want to sort of fast forward a little bit and talk about where you are today. But let's go behind the scenes and back to maybe the 80s when you were working in the film business after college um, for 11 years as a costume supervisor. So not only have you started multiple businesses, but it sounds like you really also are a master at pivoting careers. Yes. And the funniest part is that when I, um, I got into the film business in 1987, I guess, uh, and after college and I, you know, thought I was going to live and die in the film business. I was like, this is my career and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur. (laughs) And I never in a million years thought I'd ever have my own business. It just was not it didn't seem like it was in my DNA at all, which of course turned out to be the complete opposite. But, um, 
yeah, so while I was working in the film business uh, doing costumes, I realized the need for a couple of things that we didn't have. And the first one in 1994, I started my first company, which was called Rags to Order. And it was kind of a play on words because costumers used to be called rag pickers in the olden days. And it was, I don't know how they got that name, but Mm -hmm. anyway, um, probably from like, you know, the 1920s or something. And so it was kind of a play on words and we manufactured, um, massive amounts of clothing, like large scale manufacturing for big movies like the matrix and star Trek eight. And, um, Ocean's Eleven and just really big movies out of sight. You know, we'd make like for wind talkers, we made 7,000 military uniforms. So it was these really, (laughs) it was this really big, large scale company and it, but it wasn't really a business in the sense that it, um, there was, I was never on the hook for anything because the movie companies paid 50% upfront and then 50% upon delivery. So (laughs) it was, um, it was, it didn't, I didn't really realize like how business worked. Right. Cause I had all the money to make the stuff and then we got the money like the next day after we delivered. And so there was never, you know, this lag time. Right. So it didn't really, I mean, I, obviously we were up on our cost of goods sold and all that kind of stuff, but we never had cash flow issues. So I didn't really know what that was. Then my second company, I was still working in the film business and kind of, these were my side hustles. <laughs> and, um, I started a friend said, Hey, we always rent other people's wardrobe trailers. Cause we were always on location, you know, some, not necessarily away from Los Angeles, but on the streets shooting somewhere. So we always had this huge 48 foot semi or a 53 foot semi, like the kinds you see, like, you know, the grocery store driving on the highway, um, those huge Walmart trucks and stuff. So we, he said to me, why don't we build our own? And I was like, God, that's a great idea. And so we got my parents to invest a third and I invested a third and he invested a third because they were about 150,000 to build. And so you buy the empty box and then they deck, you know, Mm, trick it out on the inside. So we built our first trailer and, you know, we had obviously bank, bank loans and we find, we, we paid cash for most of it, but we financed a small amount, but it was still your, the minute it's finished, you're getting this weekly income because they're rented by the week. And so again, I didn't really understand cash flow, you know, and then as we start, we built a few more trailers and built them on credit and, you know, learned how to, I learned how to kind of manipulate the 0% credit card. You know, we'd get a bank loan and then I'd move the money onto the credit card at 0% and we'd pay that down really fast. And then I'd move more money off the 9% bank loan. And so we paid them off faster than the five years that way. And so it, it was, you know, but this whole time I had my job working in the film business, you know, so I had my salary and all of that kind of stuff. So you didn't and quit your day job until when? No, till I decided in 1997. So this is, you know, like 10 years later, um, that I was going to start a handbag company toward out of the blue. I didn't really decide I was going to do it. I just sort of had this idea for this handbag and I made it at night and on the weekends and figured out how to do it didn't tell anybody. It was like the secret of the century. And, um, and finally I went to have dinner with this costume designer I'd been working with for years. And she's like, where have you been? Like, you never want to do anything. So we go out to dinner and I should bring this bag with me and I show it to her and she's just, you know, dying over it, thinking it's the cutest thing she's ever seen. And we go to this restaurant, we go to a lot and sit at the bar and I put my purse up on the bar and this woman comes over and says, Oh my God, I love that bag. Where did you get it? 
So I sit there like a complete idiot turning like every shade of purple. My friend says, oh, she's the designer. She makes these bags. And the woman says, oh, well, I'm a buyer. <laughs> for this no store. way. Oh, yeah, totally. And I, I mean, I, at that point, I think what? I was practically under my stool. That was I the best dinner you ever spent money on. Exactly. And so she, but of course she said, well, I, you know, it was the name of the store at this mall that I, you know, of course I knew all these stores cause I shopped for a living as a costumer. And so I knew the store she was talking about and she said, you know, we don't, we only import from Europe, so I can't actually buy your bag. But if you start selling them, will you let me know? Cause I want to buy one for myself, but you've really got something here. I think you should start your line. And so that was, it was kind of, that was my pivot moment. So what and were the friend, bags like? Describe them for us because I mean, so, how, yeah, so how, it was how, a, why was it so eye catching? It was a very simple shopping tote style. So it looked like a little miniature shopping bag, but it was made out of felt and it had pinking sheer edges. So it was cut with those zigzag scissors mm-hmm. and it was stitched on the outside. So you could see the little zigzag stitching and there was nothing like, you know, revolutionary about it or anything. It was just really unusual looking. What year was this? Uh, 97. Yeah. So, you know, coach bags were really big. The tote was really making a comeback. comeback. It's just breaking to the marketplace. Mm And, um, and so, you know, I think, and so it was handbags were really making a comeback then, you know, Fendi was really starting to reinvent themselves at that point too. And it was just, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't get into the business because of any of those reasons. It was just because I had this idea for this bag. And so, which I never really thought was going to go anywhere. And so I, um, you know, my costume designer friend was like, oh my God, you've got to get going on this. This is such a great idea. You're so lucky you can get out of the film business, you know, cause everybody who works in the film business w- wants to get out <laughs> because it's such a hard job and it's, you know, so under, in, in a sense, underpaid for what you're, what you're doing. It's, it's, you do make a good living at it. This um, was kind of the business that really took, took you, not only took you out yeah. of the nine to five grind, but it really also, generated millions of dollars. And the secret to some of this was the fact that you got it in the hands of some major celebrities like Mm -hmm. Sarah Jessica Parker, who was the it woman of the night of like the late nineties, early two thousands, right? Because of sex in the city. Um, Oprah, Jennifer Aniston. I mean, how did you get, I mean, you worked in the film business. I get it. That's helpful, but still Mm -hmm. that doesn't guarantee you access to these people. Exactly. So it's so funny because you'd think, right, I, I quit the film business. I start this handbag company and I'm just like, woohoo, I'm going to get it to all these famous people I know or I've worked with. It doesn't work that way because you actually don't ever get direct contact to the celebrities. Even in the costume department, we had to go through their agents or publicist or the casting office or somehow we never just like had their cell phone number or email and, you know, got in touch with them ourselves. And so I didn't have any direct contact to them um, that I could rely on or anything. So it actually took about two years. I was into my business for about two years before it even occurred to me to get products to celebrities. And the only reason that I did is because I was out to dinner again with the same costume designer friend and she's complaining to me, which she never did, never complained about anything. She was telling me how the studio was making her use Donna Karen clothes on Donald Sutherland on this film she was doing. And she was so mad because it wasn't right for his character and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sitting there sort of listening to her. But meanwhile, having my own aha moment of, wow, if all these famous designers are now forcing people, you know, using the studios and the studios are forcing designers to use the clothes, 
there must be something to this and I'm going to do this too. Why didn't I think of it before? I'm such an idiot. You know, it was like all this going through my head. Mm. And so literally the next day at work, I was like, who can I get something to? And the first person I sent something to was Sarah Jessica Parker, because I knew someone who knew her agent. And so I sent, I just called them up and said, Hey, I want to send this bag to her. If I send it to your office, can you get it to her? And they said, sure. Wow. (laughs) It was that easy. And so I just packaged this bag and I never heard another word. But to me, I didn't really care because I knew they told me they gave it to her. And I was like, Sarah Jessica Parker has my bag. That's all I need to know. So then I decided to go after Liv Tyler, who was starring in Party of Five at the time. And she was pretty famous. And again, I sent it to her. I think they might have had the same agent. I don't remember. And I don't hear anything. And then about two or three months later, she shows up at a movie premiere carrying my bag in InStyle magazine. And I was like, ching yes. Wow. And that was, it was that moment really that led me to really see the power of getting products to celebrities. Mm. And, and that once you do that, right, there was all these stores that I wanted to get into. And so I, you know, made a really pretty press clipping and, you know, Liv Tyler, you know, carries our bags and then of course sent it out to all the stores and they were like, ching, ching. Yeah, we want That is so money. What was the direct (laughs) money correlation to that? So Liv Tyler's photograph wearing your handbag. What happens next with your bank account? (laughs) <laughs> or your orders. We, uh, yeah, we, well, we didn't have a we didn't have a website yet, so it was really oh more. It, yeah, I know it was really more store orders. We probably got about twenty or thirty thousand dollars worth of orders from stores over the next month or two. So that was huge for me. I mean, wow. I was only you know it was kind of towards the end of my second year, and you know I wasn't super famous yet. I'd been really lucky, and I'd had a lot of press, and I'd been in tons of magazines, and um, you know women's wear daily mm-hmm. and all the, you know, regular, normal fashion magazines, but none of it had, had been like huge windfalls. You know, it would bring in some sales, you know, being in a magazine, but n- that was the first time that it really brought in a substantial amount. And then it's then immediately it was, you know, we were get, in the middle of getting a website up and cause this was probably building the late. plane while you're flying it as we exactly, say. you know, I think we launched in 2000 or something, the website. What was the biggest uh, I suppose, uh, kind of serendipitous thing or strategy even that, that reaps huge rewards for you. So obviously you've had all these celebrities where you're, um, be photographed with this handbag, um, or endorse it. But what would you say was like the biggest gift? <laughs> um, probably, probably getting my bag into the legal in legally blonde, Oh. Um, they, yeah, they ended up using it in the advertising and publicity. It didn't actually make it into the movie. I don't think I couldn't see any of my stuff in the, in the movie. I've watched it so many times, but it's also fast moving, but they did. My bag was sitting right next to Reese Witherspoon in this huge ad campaign. And that we, we got a huge $120,000 order from Nordstrom's and Sony was so excited about it that they actually made mini movie posters to put in all the bags because it was an internet only order from Nordstrom. And so they had some time and they whipped out these movie posters. And that was probably my biggest single, Mm. um, financial win from getting, you know, from being associated with celebrities. And then, but it's in a poster. They're not labeling it. And it's not like an Instagram picture where they can like tag the, who's, who this purse is made by. How did people find you from that? They just was covered in magazines or something. I think, well, Nordstrom sent out 
you know, sent out a promo for it. Mm, Um, and I think that's really what, what projected the sales for that, you know, like, I mean, we went to Nordstrom about it and then once they bought it, I don't really know exactly how they did their own advertising, but I mean, we, we went directly to Nordstrom right away because I'd been trying to get in there. I'd been in there on and off, but they'd never placed a huge, a huge order before. And they were actually one of my very first vendors. (laughs) And, um, when I really didn't know what I was doing and, but, and then as I, as my company grew, I was in Saks and Barney's and Bloomingdale's and, but I could never really get Nordstrom's to roll it out. And that was, so that was a, a coup for me as well. Cause then of course that opens other doors, you know, once they see that you're being sold by a big department store. I wonder if you had started this business in 2017 instead of, you know, um, 1997, if, if the sort of celebrity photography with the bags would have been as uh, powerful. I think these days now more and more there are these like social media influencers, you know, these fashion bloggers and so on who tend to have a lot of influence when it comes to consumer decision making. But still, uh, it never hurts to get Sarah Jessica Parker wearing one of your one of your things, one of your creations. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing too about all those influencers is everybody knows they're paid. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a big difference of saying, Hey, so-and-so's got my product or here's a photo of so-and-so wearing my product Mm. because the influencer, you know, she might be big in her circle, but she's not big in the world. Right. Right. You know, and so it's really different to see, you know, Jennifer Aniston in people magazine wearing something that you made is going to sell, you know, you're going to sell 2000 of them whether, and if an influencer is writing about something, I don't know what they would sell, but it's not going to have the same impact because it's not Jennifer Aniston wearing your thing. It's might be someone saying she has it or I'm just like her, but mm. it's not, it's not the yeah. same. Yeah. It's not, the, it's not authentic. Yeah. You had said earlier that you didn't know that you were an entrepreneur, but now looking back it's clearly in your DNA. What were, looking back, what were the signs that you were an entrepreneur? For those of us listening, I mean, maybe we're all entrepreneurs on the inside somewhere. <laughs> what what should we be recognizing in ourselves that could be well played into a successful entrepreneurial venture? Well, I think, I mean, for me, I think what kind of what signaled it I mean, like from the very, like I started babysitting at 11 and making money was really important to me. Um, my, my grandmother had helped me open a bank account when I was about seven and she started teaching me about saving because her, she, her parents immigrated from Germany and she was born in America, but barely, I think my grandmother, my great grandmother was probably about five months pregnant when they got here. And, um, she grew up in New York city and or I should say in the Bronx. <laughs> and, you know, she didn't even speak English till she went to first grade. They all spoke German at home. And, and, you know, and she really kind of learned how to get by in the world and, and kind of crawled her way up to the top. And she, you know, taught me that when I was young and was like, you need to save and you need to be independent and you need to have your own money and don't depend on anybody else. And, you know, and it was always kind of, that was always stuck in the back of my mind. You know, every time I earned something, she told me to put away at least 25% of what I got. And, you know, or or if she gave me $25 for my birthday, you know, she expected me to put 25% in my bank account. 
And sometimes she would just give me money and say, this needs to go in your bank account. You know, it might be $10 or whatever, $25. And, you know, in the seventies, $25 was a lot of money. <laughs> and um, and we know. also saved more back then. 20% was, was, was standard. Now it's like, oh, you really want me to save 10%? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know. And, um, but I have secrets for that too. And, um, and so I, I think that, you know, just from her teaching me at such a young age that when I started working in the film business, one of my jobs was managing the money as a costume supervisor, you manage all the budgets. And so I got really, I was really good at it. And I, and I think that that, you know, those, that early learning from age, you know, 22 on was really, um, kind of the beginning of entrepreneurship for me. Cause even though I didn't work for myself, it felt like it was my own money because I was responsible for it. You know, I had to be really careful with it. Everything had to be budgeted out. Uh, I had to report to people and tell them why I was spending the money and how I was spending it and, or why I needed more or why I wasn't using as much or whatever the reason was. And, and so it, it was something that I just, I don't know, I've kind of felt, felt, it felt natural to me. And so when I, when it, when I decided I was going to start my own business, it seemed like I needed to learn how to manage the money, you know, and it, I wasn't actually, wasn't that great at it. (laughs) When I started my handbag business, I was a bit of a disaster, but I still kind of, I had that feeling of, of knowing what I was supposed to be doing. I just didn't know how to do it. And so how did you get the help? You said you had issues with cash flow because you had the luxury of not worrying about cash flow for the first two businesses. Mm -hmm. And then I guess with the handbag business, it was a little bit tricky, a little trickier. So what, what resources did you tap into? Did you have mentors? What questions did you ask? I really didn't have anybody. Um, so I was really kind of floating out there on my own. It was really scary. Um, you know, there was Yahoo at that point, there was no Google and oh, my dear. kids just, and my kids were like, how did you live without Google? You know, <laughs> like, uh, we did. And, um, and so, you know, and Yahoo was just, was pretty new and, um, you know, so not, you couldn't really sit down and you know, do a lot of research or anything yet. And so, and there really was no research about fashion. And so I kind of, you know, I would go across this, I had an office in downtown LA, this little teeny 200 square foot place. And I'd go across the street to the, to the, um, California market, which was where all the showrooms were and kind of walk around and dream about having one of these people represent my line. And every time they had a market week, I would go and kind of take, um, take flyers that other designers left out. And I'd learn about how to do that. And then I would ask occasionally there was this one little like fashion group I tried to go to a few times, but they were really more about bragging about how fabulous they were than teaching anyone. So that kind of bombed out. And, but I did meet a few people there who I could ask questions to. And so I sort of started to piecemeal things together, but it was never really like a, a session with anybody who was a mentor who could sit down and kind of say, give me the A, B and C of how to do it. It was, um, it was kind of fly by the seat of my pants and it really wasn't until, um, probably close to 2000 that I got, a, a new, an investor or 2001, uh, an investor who, um, who had brought Kate Spade's company, who'd worked for Kate Spade as, as a consultant and had helped grow her company from 26 million to 70 million. And he came in as an investor in my company and was hoping to turn me into the next Kate Spade brand. And this was after nine 11. 
and, um, he really taught me a lot. So it really wasn't until I was about four years in that I learned the most about margins and cash flow and, um, and kind of realized that I was re- really underpricing my bags. And that was why I wasn't as profitable as I should have been. Oh, how much were they? And what did you increase it to? Well, I had my, my main cash cow, that bag with the pinking shear edge that I always had good margins on, you know, um, not, not full margins though. Cause it, it cost me $25 to make my, my, um, like biggest selling bag. Right. And it's, so it should have been selling for, um, wholesaling for 62 50, but I was only wholesaling it for 55. Hmm. So, you know, right there, you're losing yeah. Times all that money, how many right? Thousands and thousands right. of bags. Five right. or 10,000 a year or whatever we sell of that bag. And then, you know, then it should have been, um, you know, probably like maybe 150 retail if it was selling, you know, wholesaling for the proper amount. And I think we sold them for maybe one, 125 or Where something. Where was Shark Tank when you needed it, right? I feel exactly. like you could have killed it on, you could kill it on <laughs> yeah. Shark Tank. I mean, there'd be like yeah. a shark war over this. Uh, yeah. Um, but the business, the handbag business closed in 20, 2002. Um, mm-hmm. t- and you also lost the trademark to your own name. How did all that mm-hmm. transpire? Do you regret anything from that experience? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I lost my invest, my major investors pulled out after nine 11. And so literally like two weeks after this huge article came out in the LA times business section about my, me and my investors. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they, they just had a lot of financial problems after, after nine 11. And so like, you know, like all of us did because fourth quarter was yeah. terrible. And then it was really, they did a ton of business with Walmart and they had all, you know, all the boats were sitting outside of the LA port and it, and everybody's stuff, you know, food was rotting, the orders were getting canceled, you know, cause it, they were investing, they were in uh, investigating every single container that came in mm. oh. and it was, so yeah. it took, it took, instead of taking like two weeks to get through customs, I think it took like three months. And so, um, you know, they're like, we can't deal with you. We have $12 million sitting out in the port. You know, we can't, we can't handle your $500,000 problems. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, um, so they pulled out and that's when I actually went and got the Kate Spade guy, um, came in and tried to save my company, but, um, you know, his, his ideas didn't work out either. So I just decided to close the company at the end of the year. Um, and, and in a way it was a blessing. I mean, the bad part was I lost the trademark to my name, um, because it was owned by the company, my corporation owned it. And so this is a lesson that you should always trademark everything under your personal name and then license it to the company because then you actually own it yourself. And so my shareholders were so mad at me for, you know, failing them that, um, they, none of them would give me back the rights to use my trademark. <gasps> what? Yeah. That's kind of just, that's very spiteful. Very spiteful. And of course, you know, I lost a hundred thousand dollars. None of them lost more than 10,000. And cause I had lots of friends and family and, um, you know, so I was like, wait a minute, I lost 10 times as much as you guys did. Yeah. And, you know, we're not talking a big investment here. It's not like I took Thanks. your life savings. So anyway, um, and then years later I started a couple of years later, I started my next company and I, I emailed and asked my old business partner if I was, you know, cause the trademark was, was still floating around, right. Nobody had 
it was still valid, but I, and I, I said, can I transfer this back to myself? I want to start a new business. It's not handbags, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, if you do anything with that trademark, we'll sue you. Oh my gosh. Like, great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so then I named my next business simply Sarah and I, you, you know, laugh now, but in the moment you were, Oh, I was crying. Live it. You were crying. Yeah. <clears throat> oh yeah. Yeah. Lots well, of years. That's that. a good lesson. Like there is, yeah. there is life after your business partners, uh, turning their backs on you and totally. Uh, and, and the biggest yeah. thing, just want to say one quick thing sure. is, is what my dad said to me after I closed my handbag business and I knew I'd lost the trademark. Then he said to me, you know what? It doesn't matter if you name your next business gobbledygook. He said, they can't take away the fact that Sarah Shaw is your natural born legal name. And anything you do is always going to be designed by you. And they didn't suck your brains out. So, you know, <laughs> and he's like, so true, truth, says, speak the truth, dad. Yeah. yeah gobbledygook designed by Sarah Shaw. It can always say designed by you, even if the trademark isn't yours, you know, it doesn't have your name in it. He said, it doesn't matter. You're still you. And that was kind of the best mm, advice he'd probably great. given to that point. <laughs> Is your dad an entrepreneur? He was. Well, yeah, he was sort of. He, um, he's gone now, but he was a psychiatrist and had his own business, you know, mm. and had other companies and, you know, taught workshops around the world. So yeah, he was an entrepreneur. His parents were both entrepreneurs. Amazing. My mom's parents were both entrepreneurs. There you go. So were her, her great, her grandparents. So yeah. You can't help it. It's just, it is who you are. And all my siblings are entrepreneurs. (laughs) So, and you have two, you have twins, you have twin girls. Are they going to become entrepreneurs? You think? Uh, Possibly. They talk about it. You know, one week it's, they want to be a doctor, then a vet and then a fashion designer and, you know, then an actress and then, you know, fashion designer and, you know, kind of goes back. Are are you guys in LA? They have to be hyphenates. They have to be fashion designer (laughs) slash veterinarian slash entrepreneur. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just to fast forward this timeline of entrepreneurship, 2003, you started a closet organizer for handbags, Mm -hmm. uh, made lots of money. 2006, launched your own company, Simply Sarah, which also uh, did very well financially. And this is where you say that you actually had the business model down. So it took like, I don't know. A decade? Forever. Yeah. (laughs) Forever. Yeah. I mean, I really, what I did was I looked back at everything I did right and wrong with my handbag company, you know, made these lists of everything. Because you have to remember, there wasn't social media back then. There was no bloggers. There was no Google. You know, lots of people, buyers weren't on email. You know, it was super, you know, pen and paper and, you know, postal stamps. And so I looked at what I did then and, you know, the celebrities and the PR and magazines and all that. And I just made this whole kind of plan for myself with, when I launched my handbag hanger and it just worked, you know, and I, you know, Facebook was just coming on and mm. everybody was on email finally. And, you know, you didn't have to print everything and put it in the envelope and mail it for $4. Oh my so gosh. it made, it made business less expensive. You know, people, I remember people saying, Oh my God, you know, constant contact. Cause they were one of the first, you know, email marketing programs or that I knew about back then. It's so expensive. And I'm like, uh, it's so cheap compared to sending out, you know, five times a year doing mailings for four or $500 a mailing to stores and magazines. Like this is push a button and you talk to them all in three seconds, you know? So, um, you know, so it's funny. It's like, in some ways I think that I, because I had all that experience with the analog world, right. That the digital world to me seems so easy, you know, like I don't, yeah. it, I mean, push a button and boom, right. The person has the email, they have the, your contact, they see the photos, they can buy your product, 
and all that stuff. It just seems so simple to me now. <laughs> if you had to give your life story up till now a title, like if you were actually to create an, I don't know, a biography of your of your travails, what would it be called? Uh, something like uh, how how I launched six businesses and lived to tell about it and loved every <laughs> minute of it. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, that would sell. And yeah. so your sixth business is that you are now consulting because why not? You've gone exactly. through so much and your wisdom is invaluable. What are you? Uh, what do you find yourself teaching people over and over again? Well, it depends. I mean, for the most part, people come to me with a product already made because they've figured out how to do it and they've got a garage full of whatever. And are, you know, my husband's going to divorce me if I don't figure out how to sell this kind of situation. <laughs> and, um, and, and so really I find that I am showing people how to get products to celebrities. That's a big part of what we do because it, it gives your business credibility and, you know, you can hope for a photo or a thank you note or, you know, seeing them in a magazine or po they post it on social media. Um, and that actually gives you the credibility to go out and sell to your online shoppers, you know, because you can post it on Facebook and then say here, you know, so-and-so has this, you know, whatever pair of glasses. And then you can say, here's a coupon code for 30% off this pair of glasses, you know, and it's called, you know, Jennifer Aniston 30 or whatever, if she mm -hmm. has it. And so, so it's, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of how to sell to stores. A lot of people don't really understand the art of selling to stores. They don't really know what to say. They get, you know, they get on the phone with a buyer and they just fumble their words. They talk too much. They don't really know how to get to the point. Um, they want to over explain what, what they're mm -hmm. selling. And so it's streamlining a lot of that, looking at their websites, you know, most people have really terrible website descriptions, um, showing them how to, how to entice the buyer, you know, how to, people are often too close to their products. So they don't really know how to describe it as if you've never seen it before. So there's a real art to creating product descriptions online that actually engage the viewer and get, give them a sense, like, especially if you're selling a candle or a skincare or something that has a scent or, you know, is supposed to create atmosphere. Those can be really tricky. When you compare your experiences with money in the business versus your experiences with money in your personal life, uh, do you find that there are, there's overlap or there are common issues like you said you were you had a difficulty grasping cash flow in the business was that something that was parallel in your personal financial life i'm just trying to see how Not much all. yeah <laughs> no no it's funny i mean when i when i worked in the film business i lived in apartments you know had various apartments and was finally in my dream apartment and i was working on a movie with this guy i'd worked with a couple of times but had never really you know we were we were colleagues and both were costume working. This is when I was still a dresser before I moved up to being a costume supervisor right before actually. And he had just bought a house and I was like, God, how did you do that? You know? And I know, and of course, cause we made the same amount of money. And so all I could not imagine how he did it. And I was really careful with my money. I've always been careful with it. You know, I like look at every penny all the time. My bank, my bank accounts are like, you know, it's always like to the penny of what, what I have in there balanced. And, um, 
And so I, I said to him, you got to tell me your secret because he was maybe a year or two older than I was. And, you know, and I, for some reason I was like, I had to have a house before I was 30. There was something, you know, I don't know what it was. My, my, my younger brother had already bought his first property and he, he was tearing it down and rebuilding and he's in construction. And, you know, and I was like, oh, he's got a house already. I got to have one too. And so I said, what's your secret? And he's like, well, you should be able to live on two paychecks a month. I was like, what are you talking about? And, you know, and I wasn't living a lavish life or anything. And, you know, he kind of taught me how he broke it down and where he cut corners or whatever he did. And he was like, I'll bet you if you put every other paycheck in the bank, you'll be able to buy a house. You know, so I'm calculating, you know, and it took me about a year and a half to save for the down payment. And I did what he said. And I just put all the, I sent the money. (laughs) This was my big secret. I opened a bank account at a bank that was, you couldn't go there. Like, unless it was maybe like I was in LA and it was up in the Bay area and they had, you know, it was one of those like California tax free accounts or something back then. I don't even think they exist anymore, but I don't know. Anyway, I, I said to them, don't, I don't want a checkbook. So when I want money, I want to be able to call you and tell you to send me the money. And that was how I still do that to this day. I have got money, you know, with my investor guy and he's like, okay, so we'll send you. I'm like, don't do not send me the checks. I don't want the checkbook. If yeah. I need money, I have to or, call you. Or throw out the debit card that comes with the online checking account that you opened exactly. up. Yes. Yeah, no, I don't, I didn't even get any of that. I was like, don't send me anything. And that was how I saved for this house. And the only you know, I never touch that money. I mean, it's obviously there if there's some financial emergency that, you know, that you deem <clears throat> is something that the money could go to. But it's, that was how I saved for my first house. And, and just to go back to clarify, two paychecks a month, that's assuming you're getting paid every week. So, because most people yeah, just get two every, a month anyway. Yeah, we got paid every week. So just 50% of your income per month should go mm-hmm. to savings. I mean, that, truthfully, like we talked earlier, your grandmother told you to save 20%. Most people these days have a hard time just saving 10%. But it, by and large, the people who come on this show who have had achieved significant financial success do not save 20%. They save 45, 50% of their mm-hmm. earnings and they live, they live very simply. They're not, mm-hmm. it's a struggle sometimes, but then yeah. they are able to, you know, take that money and reinvest it or put it towards the future. And, and then when they're 45, they can kind of quit that day job and figure their next path. Exactly. Yeah. Sarah, you've been such a fantastic guest. We haven't even gotten to the list of the so money questions, although I think we've learned a lot about your financial mindset and your entrepreneurial mindset through this candid conversation. We really thank you for coming on. And um, we want to also guide people to your podcast. So tell us about this amazing podcast before we wrap, where you've interviewed everyone from Venus Williams uh, to, gosh, uh, Rebecca Minkoff uh, and everyone in between, Barbara Corcoran. Tell us about it. And how do you get those great guests? (laughs) So it's called Get a Street Smart MBA. And it's really because that's how I learned. I didn't go to business school or anything. I feel like I have a street smart MBA. And I, I just, gosh, I just use my own, I use my techniques of how I teach my clients to go after celebrities. And it's really just to get, actually reach out and contact them. And, you know, they take a long time. It took me six months to book Barbara Corcoran, but I just kept on top. I actually, 
Facebook messaged her, messaged her and said, I'd love to have you on my podcast. She wrote me back in less than 10 minutes and said, you have to get in touch with my assistant. And here's her email. I almost fainted. I mean, cause I just <laughs> thought I, I was like, this is, there's no way I'm ever going to hear, you know? And the same thing. I mean, I interviewed Marcus Limonis, I wrote to them and they wrote back to me pretty quickly and you know, they can take a long time to set up, but I think it's really that most people don't go after these people that they sort of see as superstars and that when you actually do go after them, you know, they're just people too. They just happen to be famous. You know, their, their actual life isn't really any different than, you know, they have the same feelings that we do. Right. And, um, and they want to advance their business or help people, you know, or whatever it is that they're doing, talk about how they got there. And it's really fun. I love talking to, I love talking to famous people. I get really nervous, I have to say, and I get really excited and, you know, I'm really tight with my list of questions and, you know, and it's, I think it's really important, obviously, and you know, having a podcast, you have to be able to pivot and kind of go with, Mm -hmm. you know, if they say something that's interesting, you, you know, veer off your list of questions and just talk about whatever comes naturally. Yes. Yeah. We have a format on this show, but oftentimes we find ourselves going on tangents, which I think is, is great when we can do that. Mm -hmm. That just means it's a quality, interesting interview and we don't have to go back to like the standard questions. Um, although the standard questions people like too. people want to know what's on your money mind and your failures or failures and successes, but we certainly got through many of that, those, uh, personal experiences with you. Thanks to your, transparency of sharing all this behind the scenes. Sarah, thank you so much. We'll be sure to uh, keep an eye out for you. And I think I'm going to be on your podcast in the coming weeks, months. So looking forward to uh, connecting with you on that. Thanks and have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much to Sarah for stopping by. Her website is sarahshawconsulting.com. Her podcast is Street Smart MBA and she is on Twitter at Ask Sarah Shaw. If you missed any of this, you know what to do, right? Go to somoneypodcast.com and there you can download the transcript and the audio. And if you click on Ask Farnoosh on the top right corner, you can use that to leave me a note for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, what's on your money mind? If you have a question about starting a business or transitioning careers, how to save, how to invest, how to get out of debt, all of the above, I'd love to hear from you. And also, would love to know if you want a co-host. I'm looking for co-hosts for 2018, so let me know there as well. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving, and I hope your day is so money. Money.